0: The title of tonight's talk is Escaping from the Prison of Concepts. Our many actions are mostly directed at establishing suitable conditions for happiness to arise and avoiding those conditions which lead to misery, distress or suffering. Wanting happiness Avoiding suffering, this is the basis from which most of our actions spring. There are different things in this world that can bring happiness and enjoyment. However, as different people have different dispositions, a certain thing or a person or a certain condition is not necessary the source for happiness for everybody. For example, a homemade scone with butter, jam and whipped cream can be a great delight and source of happiness for a person who likes sweets. However, for an overweight person who is on a strict diet it can be a very painful experience of being offered such a scone, because he or she has to hold back the insatiable desire to eat that scone. Or else, for a person who likes nature, there is nothing more enjoyable than going out for a hike in the mountains. Whereas, for a computer freak, there is nothing more fascinating than the screen of a computer. That's far more exciting than even the most beautiful view from the top of a mountain. There are countless things that can be the source for our happiness, such things as a beautiful sunset, or a letter from a dear friend, listening to our favorite music, maybe wearing precious jewelry, or going out with our partner for a candlelight dinner, or going um, cross-country skiing, or bungee jumping, or driving a Porsche, or just reading a nice poem. The list is endless, So each person has a different idea or different opinion of what the source of his or her happiness is. So different persons have different preferences. We could ask ourselves, in order to feel happy, what do we normally do? is our preference. Or we can ask ourselves, right now, in order to feel happy and content, what would I do? Of course only if you're not already happy and content. Based on our previous experiences, based on our tendencies, habits, preferences, we also have very strong views and opinions about the necessary conditions for our happiness to arise. And as a result of that, time and again, we engage in this or that action or arrange our environment accordingly. Over the years, maybe over the past lives, It has become a strongly ingrained habit and people are not aware of it anymore. Not knowing it, it's just acting compulsively. So among the things uh, that can be the source of happiness and enjoyment, we should pick those things which bring real and lasting happiness and peace to our minds. As we can realize from our own experience, the happiness and joy that we gain from the experiences of the pleasures from the six senses, they are fleeting and unstable. Whatever we experience through our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind, all these experiences are fleeting, they are changing, they are not staying the same for um, a long time, not even for a short time. And so when they change, when they disappear, the source of our happiness is gone, and with that. Most of the time, our happiness too. And on top of that, whatever these inner or outer stimuli are, most of the time they are only processed and heavily edited ideas or concepts about what is presently experienced. This means that the mind of an untrained person is mostly concerned with ideas, concepts, or preconditioned views of the object, rather than the object or the experience itself. And so in this way, people get a distorted view of reality, a view, a concept, that has nothing to do with what actually is. And it is for this reason that we are still running after more experiences, assuming them to be the source of our happiness. According to the Buddha, this is an endless game, which will never bring the desired result. Therefore, we should look for some happiness and peace that is not dependent on either outer um, nor inner stimuli. What the Buddha proposed for gaining true happiness and lasting peace is of quite a different nature. He said that only a well-trained mind that is free from greed, hatred and delusion, can be the source of true and lasting happiness. In other words, this means that we have to see and understand the distorted nature of these ideas or concepts, and that we have to come to understand the real nature of phenomena. This tendency of the mind to conceptualize our experience is a great hindrance on our way to liberation. As long as we float on the surface of our ideas and concepts, it's not possible to dive into deeper levels of reality. The Buddha was well aware of this fact. He was well aware that a concept, a name, is not what actually exists. That the name, a concept of something, is world apart from what actually exists. And so he distinguished between the so-called conventional reality and Absolute Reality. On a conventional level, we have women and men, dogs and cats, houses, trees, mountains, rivers. We say something is long or round, big or small. However, the Buddha said, on an Absolute level, there is no such a thing as a woman or a man, a cat or a dog, long, short, big and small, have no longer a footing on the absolute level. The Buddha said that what actually exists on this absolute level is just a process of changing phenomena changing phenomena of body and mind. But still, the Buddha would use these conventional terms for easy communication. He was talking of men, women, monks, nuns. He was talking about animals, petas, devas, brahmas. And so forth. He was referring to villages, to towns, to kingdoms, or he was also mentioning or pointing out outstanding qualities of his disciples. For example, when his stepmother, Mahapachapati Gotami, passed away. She was the first woman to become a nun, to become a bhikkhuni. And it is said that she passed away at the ripe age of 120 years. So holding the remains in a casket in his hands, the Buddha told uh, his disciples who were there, Her death is like the breaking of a big branch from a big tree. She has crossed the ocean of samsara. Since all defilements have come to an end, all suffering has ceased. While living, she was a woman of high intellect, besides being the most senior among all Bhikkhunis. She was endowed with the five supernormal powers and she was a perfect bhikkhuni. Although the Buddha used these conventional terms, he was well aware that they were only words indicating something that existed in a different mode of being on the Absolute level. But for people whose minds are not trained, these conventional realities is all that they know, and so they firmly believe that this is what really exists. They take that for reality. And so they take the shadows for the real thing. When they see the shadow of a flower, then they take this shadow to be the real thing, because they have never seen the flower. Or let's take another example. All the various experiences that serve as the basis for our happiness, they are as insubstantial and without any essence as our last night's dream. Normally. When we are dreaming, everything seems to be extremely real and we can experience it in the dream really, vividly. Our conversations with the other person in the dream seems to be real and we even can feel the touch of the other person as she holds our hands, for example. Or in a nightmare, we are actually trembling with fear, and we might even scream. But as soon as we wake up, we know that it was only a dream, and that there was no substance, no reality to it. The Buddha and other liberated persons, they have told us time and again that what we take for reality is actually nothing more than a dream. There's no solidity, no essence, or no substance. What we take for having an essence, or um, having an importance, they say it's all trivial, it's all futile, it's nothing more than a bubble, and absolutely not worth to be clung to. We also can compare it with a rainbow that seems to be really existing on the sky, or like the reflection of the moon in a pond, which seems to be so real. But when we want to get hold of it, then there is no essence to it, there is no substance to it. So how can we understand the difference between this so-called conventional reality and absolute reality? Or where is the difference in understanding an object as a concept, an idea, or understanding it as an absolute reality. Imagine that you take a poor farmer from the countryside in Burma or maybe Thailand, that you take him to the Hilton Hotel for lunch. With his eyes wide open, he walks through the huge reception hall and wonders why this room had to be so big. Then you take him to the restaurant where there is a huge buffet with a great variety of different foods. And the poor farmer is utterly startled and surprised to see so much food at one time. He may have heard that such things exist, but he couldn't really believe it and thought that such things can only exist, exist in movies or maybe fairy tales. Maybe he has heard people talking about the exquisite tastes of Thai food or about the tantalite Tantalizing spices of the South Indian uh, curries. Maybe he has heard about uh, deep-fried uh, vegetables in Chinese style, or people have talked to him about the refined French cuisine, or about the creamy Italian tiramisu. And he might have wondered about the taste of Swiss chocolate or tried to figure out how salmon might taste like. So then, you take this farmer by the hand and you point out to him the different dishes. You point out, this is a Thai dish, these are South Indian curries, this is the Italian Tiramisu, this is the Swiss chocolate, these vegetables, in French style, and so forth. So, seeing these different kinds of food in front of his very eyes, the farmer is now able to differentiate these uh, dishes according to their shape, to their color, to their form. So in this way, he gets some idea, some intellectual understanding how different vegetables cooked in Chinese style or French style look. Or if he would go home to his wife, then he could describe the form and shape and color of these different dishes. But still, just by looking at these Great array of food, or imagining it, he still has no idea of how this food actually tastes like. To taste these different dishes, he has to try them, he has to actually eat them. Whatever idea he might have, what it might taste, he only knows for sure when he puts the food into his mouth. So the understanding of the real taste of the food comes through the direct and personal experience. As soon as he puts the food into his mouth, he will know, unmistakingly, and so he will know the particular flavor of this particular dish. In the same way, Absolute Reality must also be directly and personally be experienced by each and every person. It's only with this personal realization of the Absolute Nature that we come to understand and see that we have been floating on the surface of ideas and concepts. Only then will we come to know that concepts and ideas are only the shadows of things, and not the real thing itself. Ideas and concepts about things, they arise at all the different, at all the six uh, different sense doors. Each sense door has the capacity to receive a certain kind of information. The eye door for example receives information about forms, shapes and colors. The ear door receives information about sounds, noises. The nose door receives information about smells, scents, fragrances. The tongue door receives information about tastes. The body door receives information about tangible objects, tangible sensations, tactile sensations. And the mind door receives information about mental objects such as thoughts, emotions, mental states. So through the first five sense doors we receive information about the outer world. And through the sixth sense door we receive information about the inner world. And this inner world is the vast expanse of our thoughts, emotion, mental states, opinions, views, and concepts. Although there are five sense doors to receive information about the outer world and one sense door to receive information about the inner world, the receiver is the same. There is only one receiver, which is the mind. The mind can be compared to a spider running about in a web of ideas and concepts. I assume that all of you have seen a spider sitting in the middle of its web, waiting for some insect to hit the web. As soon as the insect hits the web and is caught in it, then the spider runs towards it and it wraps it up with its thread. Our mind is like the spider sitting in the middle of the web and waiting for some bait. As soon as an object enters one of the six Sense doors, it rushes towards it and takes hold of it. Immediately, the object is identified and classified in a very superficial level, and on the basis of this, then we form an idea or a concept about that object. To give you an example, not so long ago, one of the foreign meditators meditating in our center in Burma, she came to me because she needed some washing powder. So she asked me to tell the person going to the market to get some washing powder for her. And after that, she continued to talk a little bit hesitatingly. She said that during the past two days, she heard many aeroplanes passing right over or next to our center. And as a result of that, she got a lot of worries, thinking that there must be some serious fighting going on in Burma. She wondered if it was still safe for her to be there, or if it wasn't better to leave the place, to leave the country. This is what she told me, and I'm sure that she must have imagined different scenarios of what to do or where to go. What actually happened was nothing special. Near the center, there is an army airfield. And so during the past two days, they were having some routine flights. That was all. But for this yogi, the repeated sound of these aeroplanes flying next or over the center, let her mind far away from reality. And so she got completely caught up in the web of her concepts. This is quite a usual reaction of an untrained mind. The bare information or the bare data that enters at one of the six sense doors is, om- is immediately obscured by the concept that springs up. And then from this concept, the mind erupts in an effusion of mental commentary. The sound of an aeroplane, for example, can lead to a mental picture of being a victim of war a few minutes a few moments later or a numb leg, can give rise to a mental picture as we are uh, being pushed in a wheelchair. Most of us are very good at this mental proliferation, and I'm no exception to it. In the Buddhist scriptures, this is called Papancha, Apancha, it has been and still is a word that is difficult to translate. Most commonly, it's translated as proliferation, mental proliferation. It has also meanings like manifoldness or diffuseness, expansion, or elaboration. And this Papancha, mental proliferation, is explained having a threefold origin. It arises through craving, or it arises through conceit, or through wrong view. So this mental proliferation caused by craving, conceit or wrong view leads to a great degree of distortion and obsession. On account of these three factors, craving, conceit or wrong view, the mind embellishes the experience, interpreting it in terms of I, mine or myself, Just as the spider sitting in the middle of its web, we consider ourselves to be the middle of the universe with all different kinds of experiences happening around and to us. And so for an ordinary person, there is this deeply rooted sense of self which experiences this Manifold manifestations of the world. But because it is experienced on this sense of self, the bare data of the experience is immediately conceptualized. And then from that springs this distorted view of the situation in particular and of reality in general. The Buddha explained this as follows. That's from the Mahu, Mahupindika Sutta. He said, Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and thoughts beset the person with respect to the past, future and present forms. And then the same is said with respect to the other sense doors, that that's the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And then the Buddha looked at it from a slightly different angle, and he said, When there is the I, a form, and eye it is possible to point out the manifestation of contact when there is the manifestation of contact, it is possible to point out the manifestation of feeling. When there is the manifestation of feeling, it is possible to point out the manifestation of perception. When there is the manifestation of perception, it is possible to point out the manifestation of thinking when there is the manifestation of thinking, it is possible to point out the manifestation of being beset by perceptions and thought tinged by mental proliferation. So, Papancha is the tendency of the mind to proliferate issues from the sense of self. this false notion of I am experiencing something or I am thinking. This leads then to the dualism of me, not me, mine, not mine, or doer, done to. When our view and thoughts are based on this on this assumption, then our proliferating thoughts, they will give rise to internal conflict, to distress, to unsatisfactoriness, to suffering. I will give you another example. At the age of 16, I went to the French-speaking part of Switzerland during my school holidays in autumn. In order to improve my French, I took this opportunity of a national exchange program which helped to to arrange families where one could stay. Most of the time it involved uh, doing some work with that family either helping cleaning in the household or taking care of children. My family had two children, a girl that was about 7 years old and a boy that was about five years old. And so my job of taking care of these two kids proved to be the best thing for me to improve my French. At that time, I was quite good at French grammar, but my spoken French was in poor shape. So being together with these kids, which asked a lot, I just was um, obliged to talk. And so my worries of not being grammatically correct, they soon disappeared because the kids, they didn't uh, mind at all, they didn't care if I was speaking grammatically correct or not. So it was there, staying with that family near the French border, that one night I woke up to the sounds of, a, of drums. The sounds was still a distance away, but it came nearer. Although at that time, that was in the late 70s, There was no conflict or enmity between uh, France and Switzerland. I was immediately overcome by my proliferating mind. The sound of the drums, for me, that was a troop of soldiers marching towards the village. So, because I took it as a troop of soldiers, um, I was afraid, and then my mind erupted in, a, in different scenarios. First, the soldiers came and they took me along as a prisoner. The next scenario was that they were raping me. The next scenario, eh, in the next scenario, they were torturing me in different ways. And another scenario was, they came, grabbed me, and killed me on the spot. And in all these different scenarios, I was also reacting with different responses. Sometimes, I would be the strong, young, tough woman defending herself. At other times, I was this poor, little, innocent girl who had to be pitied. So then, as these soldiers came closer to the house, my fear intensified. And in between of these pangs of fear, I started to pray, because I was sure my end was near. And then, to my horror, they actually entered the house. I heard them downstairs my bedroom was upstairs. I heard them shouting and laughing downstairs in the kitchen. Then at this time my body was shaking with fear, trembling, and I was counting my last breath as I was sure that they would come upstairs, seize me, and my mind at that time, just couldn't think any further, because this overwhelming fear was just paralyzing me. All I can remember is the fact that I pulled the blanket over me, over my head, with the completely illogical hope that the soldiers then wouldn't see me. So, having the blanket pulled over me and trembling with fear and counting my last breaths. This moment seemed to be endless. It was far too long. But then, the soldiers left the house and, accompanied by the rhythmic sound of the drums, they marched away. And finally, the sound of the drums disappeared in the far distance of the night. After that, it took me a long, long time till I could fall asleep. The next morning, when I went downstairs for breakfast, I asked the parents what had happened last night, and my fear must have been still visible on my face because they apologized of not having told me beforehand. They explained that this was a custom practiced in that area. A few days before the wedding, the groom-to-be and the number of his friend, they would march through the village at night, accompanied by the sound of drums, and then enter each house and each family, each house, had to offer them some drinks. That was all that happened. However, my ignorant mind created its own story, a completely different one, just because the sound of the drums. My mind transformed it immediately, something that was threatening, and the result was this incredible fear. The practice of Vipassana meditation aims at the true understanding of reality, and with that it has the power to fully liberate us from the prison of our concepts, ideas and views. Through the practice of mindfulness meditation, we learn to be mindful, we learn to stay alert, so that we can really see what is happening. We learn to catch the moment when a thought pops up after we have heard a sound. And if we are able to catch this thought at this early stage and observe it without getting caught into the content of it, then we will notice that it disappears on its own accord. And later it will be even possible to be so focused and aware that the mind just knows the object which is arising, which might be a sound, a thought, an image, a smell, a sensation. Then the mind can just be aware of it as it is, just know the the bare uh, data of the experience without engaging in this kind of mental proliferation. And so, from this clear and unobstructed seeing, there arises insight and understanding, which is free from distortion or any subjective interpretation. First, we will get short glimpses of the real nature of things. And so, getting these short glimpses, then we will come Understand the difference between the so called conventional reality and absolute reality. For example, when we have an itchy sensation on, of, on our arm, conventionally we just feel it as an itchy sensation on our arm. We have this idea of what itchiness is, and we perceive it to be happening on my arm. But when we observe this itchy sensation, when we penetrate deeper into it, then we come to see that this itchiness consists of maybe just unpleasant sensations or some prickly sensations, which are arising and disappearing one after the other. And at the same time, when mindfulness is strong and concentration deep enough, then all we perceive are these different kinds of sensations arising one after the other. And at that time, the shape or the form of our arm is not there anymore. There is no sense of my arm feels itchy, but there is just a knowing of certain kinds of unpleasant sensations happening. So then, with this kind of experience, we are not confused anymore about the usage of words I, me, person or my arm is itching, and the statement that there is actually no I, no me, no arm, no leg. So then, gradually, as our experience deepens, our ideas and concepts, they lose their footing. And with clear insight and understanding, then there is also no more discrepancy between how we want things to be and what actually is. Liberation is attained by the total and permanent collapse of confusion which arises through proliferating thoughts. So when a painful sensation arises in the back, for example, We know it for what it is. Maybe just moments of pulling, of aching, of heat, of pricking, or whatever. We see these sensations arising and disappearing, one after the other. If we can stay alert, mindful, present, then this is what we are aware of, this is what we experience and then we are not carried away by our proliferating thoughts. It can be incredibly interesting and revealing to observe the working of our mind, be it in intensive retreat or be it in our daily life. It needs very little to throw our minds completely out of balance When we are not mindful. The barking of a dog, for example, can result in an eruption of proliferating thoughts and within seconds we can have a good time with our friends in California. The train of proliferating thoughts can go like this. The barking of the dog that reminded us of a fierce dog that we met, that we came across on a trek in Nepal. And this memory then gives rise to the memory of the English couple that we met one evening in the guest house where we were staying. And then that gives rise to the memory of the delicious apple pie that we had in that guest house. And from there, from this delicious apple pie, we remember these friends in California. And remembering them, then the mind goes on to engage in this fantasy as we walk down the beach with these friends having some ice cream. And after that, going into the car, driving up to the mountains, uh, walking through the woods, going to a nice picnic place, making a fire and roast potatoes, and if it was not for the sneezing of our neighbor, who interrupted our thoughts and brought us back to the presence, we would have been further carried away by this train of proliferating thoughts. I think I don't have to tell you, most of you are familiar with these kinds of thoughts. When there is a strong sense of self, then too our concepts or ideas are normally very well defined and strong. And so based on this ignorance, the self, the I, the ego, takes great delight in engaging in these concepts. It relishes and savors these juicy mental elaborations. The self or the I of ordinary people not only delight and takes um, joy in concepts that cause pleasant or agreeable feelings in body and mind, but strangely, it also delights in concepts that lead to unpleasant mental and even physical feelings. Being angry at somebody is a common example for this. Although the angry feeling is an unpleasant and painful mental state, still, the angry person is sometimes very reluctant to let go of the anger. By holding on to this anger, the sense of self or the sense of I is heightened and this makes the angry person feel good in a way. With this heightened sense of self, there also arises a sense of justification. Because the person has been offended, he or she has every reason to show his or her reaction by being angry. And, of course, this is a very unskillful and unwholesome way of reacting to a sensory input. But for an ordinary person, this is often the only possible reaction because nobody has ever shown them an alternative. The Buddhist teachings are rich in skillful means and practical methods to escape from the prism of concepts. To be mindful of all arising phenomena and trying to realize their intrinsic nature is one way to achieve this goal. Other ways, for example, are to use analytical reflection in order to dismantle the idea of a self, ego, or I. Or to dismantle the idea that there is any solid or everlasting substance in things. Venerable Buddha Goza, who lived in the 4th century uh, AD and who wrote The Path of Purification, he said, in which sense is it Papancha? And he says, in the sense that it leads to intoxication and delay as long as we do not see through the mechanisms of papancha, we will be imprisoned in the cycle of samsara, and therefore this delays our spiritual progress. Again, in the Visuddhimagga it is said, papanchas are so-called because they lengthen out the mind continuum of beings in samsara. In order to put an end to samsara, we have to put an end to the culprit. And as I mentioned before, it is this wrong assumption that there is an entity behind each experience. On the most basic level, this culprit is ignorance. Ignorance is kind of very crafty, and for a long time it can resist many um, attacks. There is only one conqueror which is strong and powerful enough to overcome ignorance. And this conqueror this is wisdom, understanding. Whereas our ignorance obscures and obstructs the real nature of things, and with that leads to proliferating thoughts. Wisdom can remove the veil of delusion and removes the veils of distortion. And when these veils of distortion are revealed, are removed, then we can finally clearly see what actually exists. So even one moment of sharp and penetrating mindfulness has the power to clearly and directly perceive the object without having the experience been edited or distorted by our concepts and views. So in this moment, we are directly in contact with Absolute Reality, and so see the object with pristine clarity. And this can happen at any given moment. This can be in sitting meditation, can be in walking meditation, or it can also be in the mindful observing of daily activities. So when we have such a moment of clear seeing, of clear insight, then instead of perceiving the abdominal movement as our belly, which is moving up and down or back and forth, we just perceive movement as if it had nothing to do with our belly. with deepening insight, deepening concentration, the movement then is not seen anymore as just one smooth movement, but it starts to feel a bit jerky. And if we penetrate more deeply into it, then we will start to realize that this movement This rising movement of the abdomen um, is actually consisting of tiny little movements following each other very rapidly. Seeing just a, uh, a tiny movement of rising, which is there for a moment but then disappears, and then this is followed by the next tiny movement of rising, which in turn disappears again, and which is followed by the next movement. So then we come to see that this abdominal movement actually consists of a series of tiny little movements following one another in quick succession. And when we see it in that way, then we have no more notion of our abdomen or our belly. What we know is movement. Moments of movements happening, arising and passing away. Or else in the walking meditation it can be experienced as something moving without having the idea or concept that it is our leg which is moving forward. Or the anger that comes up as another yogi uh, passes us, as we are slowly walking down the hallway. So this upcoming anger can immediately be seen as a mental state coming into existence. And if we can catch it in that moment with that clear perception of the angry mental state, observing it, seeing it, with a pristine clarity, with a sharp mindfulness, then mostly the anger is melted away into nothing. Or, as one yogi put it in the interview, saying that the anger was just eaten away by mindfulness. So with these experiences, we have shifted from perceiving the object on a conventional level to its realization on the absolute level. So we have made this shift from ideas and concepts with the resulting proliferating thoughts to the direct realization of absolute reality. Instead of only seeing the shadows, we finally see the real thing itself. And in these moments, we can experience a freedom that has no equal. For this moment, we have escaped from the prison. And this newly discovered freedom results in a different kind of happiness which cannot be compared to the usual happiness that we derive from the pleasures of the senses. This newly discovered freedom, this newly discovered happiness is much tastier, much more exalted, much more blissful or enjoyable, so to speak. And on top of that, This kind of happiness is also a happiness that is not dependent on any of the outer or inner stimuli, but this happiness is born from within. An untrained person is usually subject to the different emotions according to the circumstances or conditions, and as these conditions are bound to change, the emotions then will change too. That can be for the better or worse. And in this way, ordinary people um, are helplessly exposed to the tides of the emotions. Sometimes feeling happy and elated, at other times feeling distressed or confused. However, with the cultivation of mindfulness and the ability to stay fully present, awake and alert, a meditator develops a different basis for happiness to arise. By seeing clearly, and free from any proliferating thoughts, the meditator becomes more detached, and is also less vulnerable to the ups and downs of life. With growing understanding, the happiness is born from within, rather than being dependent on the stimuli perceived by the six sense doors. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. May we all escape from the prison of concepts and become fully liberated. And now let's chant the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother my father and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind Until I realize Nibbana, in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, and is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.